So we'll begin with Karen. Great. Thank you so much, Gad, and thanks to Kate and Steve for inviting me to be on this side of the uh, table uh, tonight. Um, so, uh, yes, tonight I'm going to talk about my new book, um, which explains the long Hispanic past of the United States. Now, my aim in writing it was to, first of all, put together a narrative history for, for both the Spanish and their descendants in the space that became the United States and write it for general readership. Now, this is in part because the United States tends to put the arrival of pilgrims on the Mayflower in 1620 at the heart of its national narrative. Uh, and what I wanted to do was look at what was going on at least a century before that, and in doing so, push at this foundational myth um, of the United States being Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. Of course, the Hispanic story of the US is only one layer. There are many others, uh, Native American, African American. but. Um, but this is one um, important part of the broader story of the United States. So to briefly explain the book, it moves chronologically across time, so uh, starting with Columbus and going up to the present day um, until about 2017 when I had to call it a day with the Trump administration and just go to press because uh, otherwise it would have never uh, gotten published, I think. Um, I should also note too, um, obviously in the subtitle um, and in the book I use Hispanic very specifically uh, to signal the connection between this longer uh, past that's connected to European <coughs> expansion um, and in the introduction I go into some more detail about debates over using Hispanic versus Latino and Latinx and so forth. Um, the geographic reach of this book is also very wide, and I have maps, um, of course. Um, and it, it doesn't, it, it takes in Florida, the Deep South, the West up to the Pacific Northwest, uh, and of course the Caribbean. And it's the latter I'm going to focus on tonight because this is Caribbean seminar. Um, and in addition, when you say you're writing a book about the Hispanic history of the United States, people think that you mean this. Um, the, that you mean the U.S.-Mexico border. This is a picture from uh, Arizona. But the story is far, far larger than that. And there's an important place for the islands of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Dominican Republic. Although tonight I'm going to refer to the Dominican Republic mostly as Hispaniola because I'm talking about it in, in the sort of um, 17th century sense, um, 16th and 17th century sense, um, to signal the whole island. So one aspect that was really of particular interest to me and that I want to expand upon tonight um, is that of the Caribbean as part of this borderland. So we think this is the border, but actually if we extend it out, where does the Caribbean fit into this Hispanic history of the United States? Um, the Caribbean is much of the frontier, um, has as much of a frontier with the US as, as does Mexico. Of course, when the sea is involved, though, it's even more complicated because you can't build a wall. Um, so what I want to do tonight is kind of discuss this, really. Um, my aim is to reposition Cuba, Puerto Rico, and Hispaniola within this book on the Hispanic past of the US. Now, part of the challenge, even within that, is knitting these three islands together, as they're often presented individually uh, in their historiographies, <coughs> often reflect a more national focus. And I want to think about them in a more regional and transnational way. So to do this, I'm going to discuss three significant periods and places that feature in the book in more detail, um, and th this will involve skipping across a bit of space and time. So the first I'm going to place I'm going to talk about is the Caribbean connection to Florida in the 16th century. The second is the US and Cuba in the mid to late 19th century, not the 20th, not the Cuban Revolution. And then I'm going to turn to Puerto Rico and touch on some of its key moments in the 20th, uh, early 20th century. 
So before I do that, though, I want to turn to this question of borderlands very briefly and, and talk about where it fits into the book. So when we think of borders, we think about the present climate, about President Donald, U.S. President Donald Trump's desire for a wall. Um, and certainly a border is a place where two nations are more come up against each other. There's zones of interaction, of cultural or linguistic or even culinary exchange. And they um, can be places of, border of overlap that have their own specific border cultures. They can even be cast as negative places, locations of the enemy or the other. Um, indeed, for Chicana scholar and poet Gloria Anzaldúa, the border is una herida abierta, an open wound, and it's a place that she writes is, quote, set up to distinguish us from them. Anzaldúa and others have contributed to an increasingly sophisticated line of argumentation about borderlands, borders, and frontiers over the past 30 or so years. In their influential article from Borderlands to Borders, Jeremy Edelman and Stephen Aaron seek some clarification over what these puzzled over designations actually mean. For instance, to them, a frontier is a place where geographic and cultural borders were not clearly defined. And as they point out, borderlands in North America were places of imperial rivalry, um, which also meant they could be places of great fluidity. But thinking about borders in this way still keeps them very grounded and very literal. And when we, when we tend to think of borders as something on a map, um, even if they are looser zones of interaction, but I think they're far more than that. Um, it's kind of like when we look at old maps of the world, like from the 15th century, and we find them sort of strange and puzzling, um, and perhaps even amusing with little sea creatures drawn on them and stuff. But these, but these sort of maps, and even, even more modern maps, have never really been about cartographic realities, um, but instead they, they are objects through which certain emotional and political desires can be communicated. So one example about, of this, which I write about in the book, um, and this is going to take us to the land border for just a minute, is the De Distanero map of, 17, um, 48, of 1847. And this was based on earlier erroneous maps um, that dated back decades. And this sold very well during the Mexican-American War because all of a sudden the U.S. was in this war and everybody wanted to find out like, what, what, what Mexico consisted of, what the West looked like, um, and it sold very well. When that conflict ended in 1848, um, the terms of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo included basing a survey of the new boundary, and this new boundary would be, consist of the land that was ceded to the US, the US which was 51% of Mexico, um, on this map. So this map was supposed to be used to delineate the boundary. And this all sounds fairly straightforward, um, but it wasn't. The joint survey that Mexico and the US did took seven years. It ran massively over budget, and it was based on a big error that put the Rio Grande too far east and El Paso too far to the southwest. So the lead surveyors had to broker an agreement on the spot in 1850, and then by the 19th century, it had to be done all over again anyway. So I recount this as an example of how, despite the fact that the borders of nation states appear firm and concrete, um, they are often too, base, too often based on ambiguity and error and where people want things to be. But where does this leave the Caribbean? Just to go back to this map. Now, there are actual land borders on two of the islands, between Haiti and DR, and between the D Dutch and French St. Martin, and of course the nations in the Circum-Caribbean. But can you have borderlands between islands? I mean, certainly these days you have international waters, you need passports to go from one island to another, but in thinking about borderlands in this wider sense, the sea can complicate factors, and it can also open up different horizons. Now, I found myself thinking a lot about this when I'm in Miami. Um, 
of course, Miami always seems to be depicted like this. It's either at the top of the Caribbean or the bottom of the US. Um, although in the global map, I, I quite like how you could almost argue it's sort of the center of, uh, center of everything. Um, but people joke that Miami is the true capital of Latin America. And while that could be up for debate, it is certainly the decompression, or perhaps the compression chamber between the US and its Spanish-speaking neighbors. Spanish is the first language in many parts of the city, and people from all over the Americas have property, family, and bank accounts there. You can get a Cafe Cubano, Puerto Rican Mofongo, or even Argentine Empanadas all, all in the same city. It is a place of convergence for people from the diverse nations and culture of Latin America, as well as between the Spanish-speaking world and the majority English-speaking United States. So there again is another type of boundary. Um, the city's metro area is always changing and evolving, and it gives Miami a sort of borderlands culture, I think, of its own. So southern Florida as a transitioning point between the islands and the mainland is not new, however, um, and it's been functioning as such since the Spanish stepped foot in the hemisphere more than 500 years ago. And I'm going to turn to that story now, so we're going to jump back to the 1500s. And thinking about the borderlands between Hispaniola and the islands Columbus first settled, 1492, in this world to the north, you know, we have to think about the Atlantic, the Caribbean, and the Gulf of Mexico forming that kind of first geographic um, uh, order. Although Spanish exploration and plunder spread from island to island, like the diseases that Europeans brought with them, the north was kind of still unknown. It's believed that some explorers or sailors might have ended up shipwrecked there, but the first known attempt to land there was by Ponce de Leon, Juan Ponce de Leon, in 1513. Um, he actually petitioned the crown to go to a place called Bimini, which is an island in the Bahamas. Um, but he landed instead on the peninsula that is Florida, and coming ashore on the Atlantic side near Cape Canaveral. And then he explored around and up over to the Gulf, landing around Fort Myers, where he encountered the Calusa people, and then he was very quickly run off. Now, some historians have speculated that the Native Americans of Florida were in contact with the indigenous people of the neighboring Caribbean islands, and that they had already heard tales of these bearded interlopers. Some work even argues that perhaps people fleeing from the Spanish and Hispaniola, Cuba, and Puerto Rico had taken refuge in Florida. Certainly, if they had been from Hispaniola or Puerto Rico, they would have known Ponce de Leon. Um, in the former, he was involved in the suppression of an indigenous uprising. And in, the in the latter, he claimed in 1508, um, and that's him there, um, and also faced uh, another native rebellion in Puerto Rico in 1511 that he put down while he was uh, serving as governor. My point here is that there are quite, quite possibly already overlapping zones of contact, a borderland between the Hispanic Caribbean and Florida, and one perhaps uh, one that people perhaps fled across or communicated uh, through as the Spanish moved into the region. Ponce quickly left Florida, though he decided to try again in 1521 when his attempt was cut short after he was shot by an arrow and died. Um, in the decades that followed, a number, a number of Spanish conquistadors helped, hoped to succeed where he, he had failed. They came and went in quite quick succession. There was Lucas Vaquez de Ayon, who managed in 1526 to place a small settlement, San Miguel de Guadalpe, on the coast of today's US state of Georgia, among the Wale people. It lasted a few months before he died. Um, the enslaved Africans they had with them ran, ran away, and the remaining settlers left. Two years later, Panfilo de Navarres, who is in, uh, the second one on the top, um, sailed to Florida on another ill-fated expedition in which everybody died, bar four, bar four men who turned up later near Culiacan in Mexico after walking across the continent for eight years, and that's the story of Cabeza de Vaca. 
Um, in, eight, in 1539, Hernando de Soto, looking very resplendent in his armor, um, who had enjoyed great success in Peru, decided to head to Florida, and he died somewhere near Louisiana in 1542. And finally, there was Tristan de Luna, um, de Luna y Arellano, who's the final picture, and he set up a colony in Pensacola Bay in the panhandle of Florida, uh, in 1559. It managed to survive a hurricane, but was eventually evacuated in 1561. So Florida was proving to be this impossible place. If we think of this area then uh, as being a borderland, then really it was the Native Americans who had managed to build a wall uh, to keep out the Spanish. The Gulf and the Atlantic was this zone across which this happened, with the push-pull of the Spanish and the indigenous people not only being on land, but across the water. And it would not just be the arrivals and departures. There were other circuits through, this, through these borders to say nothing of the boundaries between the various groups of Native Americans within Florida and the indigenous people uh, across Hispaniola, Cuba, and Puerto Rico. Um, and this is just a plain old map of Florida, just so you get a sense of where some of these places are. So Pensacola's up there. Um, and then near Titusville is where... Ponce de Leon probably landed, they think. And then, um, so anyway, you get a sense of the, the major kind of modern um, points. Eventually, the conquistadors managed to get a foothold in Florida, establishing St. Augustine, which is up on the Atlantic coast, in 1565. This only happened, however, after a group of French Huguenots arrived around uh, to what would today be Jacksonville, um, hoping to set up a colony. Now, despite the fact that the Spanish hadn't managed to get a foothold in Florida, they were absolutely not going to let any other Europeans try. So they ended up uh, massacring the French and setting up St. Augustine, and that colony actually um, stuck. But once again, it's this kind of cartel cartographic desire-shaping policy in that um, the, the limits, the extent of Florida wasn't really even known. Um, it was only guessed at. But um, So although the Spanish ran the French off, by the 17th century, they just simply didn't have the numbers of settlers in this area to keep the English away from the Atlantic coast and out of the Caribbean. And at this point, you start to see the settlement of New England and the Caribbean islands like Barbados and St. Kitts. So I'm going to leave this early Florida here. Um, just, and I, I wanted to kind of include it to give you a sense of this very early idea of the borderland. Um, I want to skip ahead now to a few centuries, uh, to the middle of 19th century. Oh, I won't do that yet. Cuba. Um, so Cuba was a kind of a borderland in many crucial ways, but two of them I want to talk about. So first I spoke, I spoke about at greater length when I was very um, kindly invited here last time in 2017, um, and I spoke about um, the 1840s and 1850s when uh, Cuba was being eyed by, and by slaveholders in the Deep South as a place that was ripe for annexation, um, in part because the island had a, a slavery regime and economic reliance on sugar. So, of course... Um, wealthy Cuban planters could see the logic of such arrangement, which would um, allow the island to finally rid itself of Spanish rule. So these plots and plans found some welcome within the United States among Cubans living there. And at this point, many of the exiles were actually living in New York or elsewhere along the eastern seaboard, but this would change. The annexationist schemes of the 1850s were failed or foiled, um, failed or were foiled as the U.S. stepped closer to its own internal conflict. Cuba, for its part, would soon be caught up in a number of its um, own battles, with the, f the first of which was the Ten Years' War, starting in 1868. 
Now, this was a struggle for independence from Spain. And although Cuba did not manage to win, it did take its first steps in its uh, peace deal towards abolishing slavery on the island, a process which was complete by 1886. Now, the war devastated the island and left some 50,000 Cubans dead. The economy was seriously damaged by the decade of fighting, and many Cubans began to look elsewhere for work, including the United States. In the years that followed, workers and bosses left the island. One cigar manufacturer, Vicente Martinez Ibor, decided to take his cigar factory to Key West, so you can see Key West down there, moving it in 1869. Even at this time, this small key that was part of Florida had a growing Cuban exile population, many of whom worked in the tobacco trade. Ibor, for his part, decided to move on, taking his cigars up to Tampa, which is up on the Gulf um, Coast side, in 1885. He bought some land on the edge of town and built a factory in a small community, uh, sprang up for the workers, and it was called, of course, Ybor City. And it remains a very lively suburb of Tampa today. So at the time, the port in Tampa provided critical access to the tobacco crop in Cuba, which it is still dependent on. However, the economy was stronger in the US and the tariffs were lower. Plus, there were plenty of Cubans to work for him. It's estimated that in this period, some 100,000 Cubans left the island, with much of the middle classes going to the US East Coast cities, but the workers heading to these jobs in Florida. Another smaller group of people within that larger movement wanted to continue to plot the island's independence. And this, of course, includes Jose Marti. His involvement in the independence struggle meant that he spent much of his life in exile, including in the United States. In 1891, some of the Cubans in Tampa invited him to give a speech. And he had mostly been in New York and the other cities, and this was his first trip to Florida. And it would turn out to be a really crucial one, as his rousing words stirred the Cubans gathered there. And until this time, there had been some divisions about the best way to proceed with the independence fight. And his drafting of what were called the Tampa Resolutions brought this diverse group of opinions together. Marti returned to Tampa um, in Florida. In 1894, he gave what would be his final Florida speech at, this, um, at the Emilio Pons Cigar Factory, which is there today. And there's a little historical marker off to the side that explains that too, um, in Ybor City. So the war for independence began the following year. Marti was soon killed on the battlefield. But his memory lives on in Tampa, as seen by this little memorial park, again, in Ybor City. And it's the uh, Friends of Jose Marti Park. And there's a little urban myth, um, which I could find absolutely no basis for, that Cuba technically owns this little plot of land. <laughs> that belongs to the Cuban government. Um, something tells me that not quite true. Um, but it's, it's lovely, and it's, it's right in the center of Ybor City, and it's very well maintained um, and very nice. So that conflict segged into the Spanish-American-Cuban War of 1898, in which the United States was victorious, and Cuba, while nominally free, was put on a short leash. Now, this may all seem well and good, but what is the movement of Cubans between the island and the mainland? I mean, does that really constitute this kind of nascent borderland? I mean, in theory, border traffic should be two-way. Well, this was also the case in 19th century Cuba. As people left for Florida, U.S. businessmen took advantage of the island's post-war weakness to buy land or invest in the sugar industry. Cuban planters, who had been ruined by the conflict, sold up to U.S. banks, and plantations began to change hands. In addition, in the 1890s, sugar tariff removed the duty on raw sugar exported to the U.S. for further stimulating production. But then there are the more cultural elements of this movement. And there's one sport that certainly exemplified this, which is baseball. Two brothers, Nemesio and Ernesto Guillo, who had studied in Alabama, received credit for bringing the game to the island, just around the time of the beginning of the Ten Years' War, creating the Havana Baseball Club. 
A decade later, there was a Cuban League of professional baseball, and the sport boomed in popularity. Talented play players often went to the US, though some were forced to play in the Negro Leagues because of their skin color. However, black baseball players from the US were warmly welcomed by the Cuban professional leagues and didn't face the same levels of discrimination. <coughs> These ties brought, sorry, excuse me, I've been battling a cold all week. Um, these ties brought the U.S. and Cuba closer together, and they were secured even more tightly during the Spanish-American-Cuban War. Although Cuba escaped Puerto Rico's fate of becoming a colony, its economic dependence on the U.S. remained high. U.S. business interests continued to grow, including participation um, by less than legal concerns, and this is when you start to see the introduction of the mafia in the 1950s, um, and the boatloads of pleasure seekers and so forth followed by the Cuban Revolution in 1959, and that's a familiar story, so I'm not, I'm not gonna go into that. But what I would say is that I should probably have slightly widen my argument to say that, that Florida itself, or at least South Florida, kind of comprises this northern section of the borderland. Because I know I talked about Miami earlier, but in the early 19th century period, Miami scarce, scarcely existed. Its boom was dependent on the development of the railways into Florida in the tourist trade of the 1890s. Um, but Key West, through to Tampa, were already quite important areas for both the struggle of Cuban independence as well as U U.S. economic development, which of course came at a high price for Cuba. Today, Tampa has faded in significance to Miami, um, or interestingly, Orlando, where the levels of immigration from Cuba and other parts of Latin America have risen in recent years. So <clears throat> another key component of this borderland is the final island I'm going to talk about, whose fortunes were bound up in the conflict of 1898, that of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico raises a very different question in relation to borders. Does a colony have borders? Do borderlands function in the same way under an imperial system? Puerto Rico's situation might not answer these questions, but it does offer some insights. Puerto Rico had a similar but distinct trajectory to Cuba. For a start, it's much smaller, and while it also used enslaved labor to grow sugar, tobacco, and coffee, its output and product profits were never at the level of Cuba's. But like Cuba, its first significant attempt at independence came in 1868. And as had been the case in the Cuban struggle, the organizer of the revolt in Puerto Rico, Ramon Betances, was no stranger to the United States. Betances spent his time in exile in New York, and he died in September 1898, which meant he lived long enough to see the island go from one imperial power um, to another. Now, the US wasted little time in stamping its imprint onto the island, not least by misspelling its name, P-O-R-T-O. Uh, rather than P-U-E-R-T-O, an error that blighted all its correspondence and articles and books and everything written in English until <clears throat> it would take 32 years of campaigning for this to be rectified. In addition to misspelling its name, the United States soon set a succession of governors, each um, more hated than the last. The first, Charles Herbert Allen, was only in office for a year before eventually going on to be president of the American Sugar Refining Company, later known as Domino Sugar. Um, and then this is a picture from around that time of people working in the cane fields. In 1902, Allen contributed to a book called Opportunities in the Colonies in Cuba, in which he praised Puerto Rico's potential to keep producing sugarcane. He had also bought a significant amount of land as, uh, during his time as governor and convinced other investors to do so. Now, in the same period, the status of Puerto Ricans was unclear. Were they to be citizens? Were they to be categorized as aliens, as other foreigners at the time were? The U.S. entry into the First World War helped clear up that question, as did the jones shafroth Act of 1917, which made the island's inhabitants U.S. citizens and permitted them to serve in the military. The legislation also allowed the island to have 
uh, and elected by Cameron legislature, giving it a degree of autonomy. Because Puerto Ricans were now US citizens, they began to seek opportunities away from the island. And thousands turned towards New York. Neighborhoods like East Harlem were transformed with the influx of Spanish speakers, giving rise to the nickname El Barrio in Spanish Harlem. Uh, by 1930, New York had a Puerto Rican population of nearly 45,000 people. By 1960, it had reached over 600,000. This not only transformed the city, but it also had an impact on the island. There had been post-war investment in manufacturing in the 1950s, known as Operation Bootstrap, but the wages, for the most part, couldn't compare to what could be made on the mainland. By the 1960s and 70s, thanks, thanks to cheap jet travel, Puerto Rico also received significant investment in its tourism, like many of the other islands in the Caribbean. Um, the movement between island and mainland has never stopped. The New York neighborhoods continue to be associated with Puerto Ricans, but others have decided to stay closer to the Caribbean in Miami or Orlando. Their status as US citizens would seemingly be dis beyond dispute at this point. But when Hurricane Maria barreled into the island in 2017, it became quite clear that many of their fellow citizens were not entirely sure if the island was part of the US or not. Indeed, a poll taken while the relief effort was underway revealed that some 54% of people were aware that Puerto Rico was part of the US as a commonwealth. That means that nearly half the country had no idea what Puerto Rico was doing, <laughs> receiving FEMA money. Um, Puerto Rico's place in the United States and, and the efforts on the island to re redefine this relationship or leave the U.S. altogether have been hamstrung in recent years because of financial complications. Um, and this is just a map of poor Puerto Rico out there on its own. These go back to Section 936, a tax-exempt status implemented in, in 1976 that allowed U.S. firms to operate tax-free in Puerto Rico. Pharmaceuticals were one industry quick to take up the offer, and many jobs followed, with some 100,000 people working in that sector. But the Congress decided this was too much of a ta corporate tax break and decided to phase it out in 2006. The island followed up with a new tax loophole that involved uh, subsidiaries dodging tax as long as there was offshore, as long as there were offshore bank accounts. Um, and at the same time, a debt crisis began to form. This is in part because Puerto Rico offered these triple exempt bonds, which meant bondholders didn't pay city, state, city, local, and um, island tax, uh, sorry, city, island, or federal tax on the interest they earned. So they were a very popular investment and they were considered to be very safe. But the island's um, costs rose and its debt load rose, and by 2014, its debt was downgraded to junk status. <coughs> but because it was a commonwealth, it couldn't declare bankruptcy like a US state could. And so, as of 2017, Puerto Rico had $123 billion in debt and no way to pay it. The year before, the U.S. government had established a seven-member federal control board called the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act, PROMESA, to restructure the island's finances. But austerity has been very severe, and earlier this year, in July, angry protests erupted, uh, which led to the ousting of Governor <coughs> Ricardo Rosillo, who had taken office in 2016. Now, when he came to power, Rosillo was not only facing the financial crisis, but a demographic one. The island had lost about 9% of its residents since 2000, around 334,000 people, with three-quarters of their exodus taking place after 2010. Many of those people moved to the Orlando area, and that pushed the Puerto Rican population in Florida past the one million mark. And then between 2017 and 2018, after Hurricane Maria, another 123,000 people left. The island status remains an unresolved question. There have been both independence movements and plebiscites that confirm its current status. The most recent vote in June was in June 2017, and it was 97% in favor of statehood, but that was only because 
the other, there's three parties, two of them are protesting it, so only 23% of eligible voters voted, um, compared to the usual 60 or 70% that such a, a vote would attract. Um, so Puerto Rico continues to hang in this very uncomfortable colonial limbo. It's a commonwealth, but not a state. The U.S. is in charge of its finances, but the island does not have the same financial rights as a U.S. state. Millions of people on the mainland don't realize Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens and thus equally entitled to disaster relief as any other hurricane-hit state. Uh, and Puerto Ricans throughout this continue to move back and forth to the mainland, which is their right to do so. So certainly Puerto Rico adds another level of complication. While at one level this appears to be a colonial relationship, with the metropolitan mainland U.S. dominating the island, I would ar argue that Puerto Rico still plays an important part um, also in this El Norte borderland. Culturally, the fact of Puerto Ricans' bilingualism and their uncertain status in the public mind, as opposed to their very clear U.S. legal status as citizens, means that they're socially forced to sit closer to Cuba and Mexico than they are to California and Texas. But as you can see here, thinking about Puerto Rico in this longer Hispanic past and reconceptualizing <coughs> the boundary changes the way that we can think about the US and its neighbors and its colonies. So this is gonna lead me to some concluding thoughts. Um, is extending the Southwest borderland into the Caribbean a helpful way to think about the Hispanic Caribbean? On one level, there is a more lived practical issue of what happens when two nations come up against each other with people moving back and forth as in the case with the US and Mexico. There's our more concrete definition of a border, and one that at the moment is being constantly evoked um, within the US because of the political and humanitarian crisis. But that's all right now. And what I kind of hope to have shown is that this movement is not recent and it's not limited to that region. This north-south flow predates the formation of the United States, and the inclusion of the islands also illustrates some of the problems that arise when thinking about both the limits of islands and of land-based nations. Are there new directions into which we can take thinking about borders? Juan Poblete offers a very useful <coughs> idea in his work on Latino immigrants. He argues that people carry their internalized border zones into everyday life, such as work in public spaces where immigrants and non-immigrants encounter each other, to Pablete, the shared proximity of people from a variety of Latin American backgrounds who recognize themselves as mobile and transnational could potentially be quite transformative. So today it means that this internal border is moved to different parts of the US, no longer constrained by geography. The border is actually everywhere, including inside individuals. Certainly as people move beyond Miami or Tijuana into places like Ohio or Georgia, there becomes a question of what a border town is. My own experience, I went to a US high school that in 1990 was 99% English speaking with few immigrants and very few Latinos. With the onset of NAFTA and the numerous jobs available in the carpet mills of Dalton, Georgia, my school was doing Tannoy announcements in English and Spanish by 1994. Uh, and the program for English learners was at capacity in the space of a few short years. Today the town remains around 50% Hispanic and my school is around 80%. Not everybody's from Mexico anymore, although that was originally the case though immigrants continue to arrive. One teacher I interviewed for the book um, told me that she found Dalton, Georgia, a city some thousand miles from the actual U.S.-Mexico border, had far more in common with border cities like El Paso in that they faced many of the same challenges. So I realized my argument for thinking about the Caribbean in a kind of similar way to the U.S.-Mexico border and pushing on this notion of a borderland kind of can appear a bit simplistic, but my aim in writing about it in El Norte was to introduce this concept to a non-specialist audience and help widen the idea of what a border could look like and how it goes far beyond lines on a map. 
Another source of inspiration in thinking about this question comes from Franklin Knight's classic work, The Caribbean, The Genesis of Fragmented Nationalism. He argues that there are two key assumptions when thinking about, the wider, about wider Caribbean history. The first is what he calls systadial, the systadial experience of the islands, which is that they pass through similar experiences, but at different times. And the second, as he put it, is, quote, the sum of common experiences and understandings of the Caribbean outweigh the territorial difference or peculiarities. I couldn't help but feel that this applies to the long history of the Hispanic past in the US as well. And I'm especially struck by the idea of the sum of common experiences outweighing the territorial difference. Indeed, the entire hemisphere is shaped by common forces, as you all know, the arrival of Europeans, the destruction of indigenous communities, the bringing over enslaved, of enslaved Africans, as well as later independence movements and the establishment of democracies across the hemisphere. There is a shared history that runs north and south, but the nations of the Americas have often been looking into their own nationalist mirror for too long. This sort of reframing can be helpful too in thinking about how we use concepts like borders. And so to these ends, I made a very specific effort to integrate the Hispanic Caribbean throughout the narrative of El Norte. The three islands of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and Hispaniola all form important stops along the long trajectory of North-South history in the Americas, but they also help us think about the hemispheric history more widely and to consider where, how, and why one place begins and another ends. And I'm going to end there. Thank you.